This is Face the Music, an electric light orchestra song-by-song podcast. Orchestra 2, bonus tracks, listener comments and outtakes. Testies, testies, one, two, three. So you're fully stocked, your inventory is complete of testies? Right. Yeah. Okay, I'm all good to go here. All right, I'm recording. I'm Eric Paul Johnson. And I'm Eric Winsenson. And this is a bonus tracks episode of Electric Light Orchestra 2. We're not going to be covering any bonus tracks that were on any re-releases or special editions or anything like that. What a bonus tracks episode is, if you haven't listened to the other bonus tracks episode, we read comments from listeners and play some outtakes and leftover stuff from... The fridge. That too. And from the album that we just went through. First up, we'll start reading comments here. These are comments from Facebook groups that I've posted links to the show on, and people have replied to them. Colin Lowe's said, I try, but I find the first album largely unpalatable for my personal taste. Though I think the Roy Wood tracks are harder to listen to than Jeff's overall. This is the only album I can pick tracks and say, these are my favorites. And they are Jeff's Mr. Radio, then Queen of the Hours, and an absolute gem from Roy, Whisper in the Night. Electric Light Orchestra 2, apart from In Old England Town, is much better than the first album, and Kuyama is in a class of its own. So, that's one other person who agrees with me that the first album, not so great. And I have a third person, and this is a big name that agrees with me. Bev Bevan didn't much like it either. I got my hands on Bev's ELO book, and I've been reading it, and he said pretty much what I had thought. That the album, he didn't really like it. It was like a concept with no idea of what to do with it. So, he didn't like it either. Well, that I kind of agree with. It did, That's really about how it felt to me. I, I like a good portion of it, but yeah, it just kind of is all over the place. We're going to be an orchestra. Okay, then what are we going to do? Songs. Okay. Can you elaborate <laughs> on that? <laughs> yeah. What kind of songs? Songs with music. And how are we going to do this music? With these instruments, instruments I found? <laughs> yeah. And I've, I've done songs with instruments I found, and there's a reason I'm not going to give you a uh, website address, so... <laughs> yeah. I'll spare everybody that. There's a reason why I'm living in an apartment the size of a walk-in closet and I'm not 250 bedroom home with three indoor pools and, and a yacht in one of my pools that has a garage for one of my smaller boats in the yacht in my pool. Exactly. Yeah. And we weren't the only ones who thought Roy Wood's cello playing was not so great. Yes. In the book, Bev wrote that early on in ELO, at their concerts, Bev, or Jeff and Roy would kind of fight, and Roy would say to Jeff, why did you play so loud? And Jeff would say something like, to cover your terrible cello playing. <laughs> so yeah, it's uh, obvious to everybody, except maybe Roy, that he, he, sh- he should have worked on that a little bit more before doing his thing. Yes. Once again, Roy is a great guitarist. He is. Great songwriter. He is, and he's made some great songs. Not many of them were on the first ELO album, though. Right. Makes me sick to my stomach. MJ Folds. Good stuff. 
It's such an epic tune. Great start to the album. It was interesting to hear about Roy's involvement, though. I have to disagree on the vocal thing. I love what Jeff does here. I think the distorted vocals add to his angry vibe. After these early albums, he then found one style of singing and is stuck with it forevermore. Well, I'm actually kind of glad he stuck with it forevermore because after a while he figured out exactly what he was going to do vocal-wise. I mean, a lot of bands' lead singer comes out fully formed when they start making this. It's, it's ELO and another band called Meat Puppets where there was a major shift once the singer learned how to really get across what they wanted to get across and in some cases kind of learned how to sing where mm-hmm. things just completely changed around. I know people like the second Meat Puppets album because it's got Lake of Fire and stuff, but everybody would have to agree that once Mr. Kirkwood started to learn how to sing properly that he got a lot better. Same with Jeff Lynne. I think Jeff Lynne was not too confident about singing and that's why he put a lot of the vocal effects on, but by um, but, well, kind of on the third day, uh, he's starting to get a lot more confident, not worrying about it. Yeah, and even in 1976, he said he wasn't crazy about the way he sung on Roll Over Beethoven, so that kind of rough screaming voice, he wasn't too fond of. I mean, it's not my favorite Jeff Lynne voice. It is kind of nice to hear different ways that Jeff had sung, and then once he found the way to do it, he just kept on doing it, because it was much more pleasing. But maybe like a little smattering early on of that distorted screaming voice, that's fine. I'm just glad he didn't stick with that for the next 50 years or so. Ah! Moving on to Mama. She said, Mama, it's a hard life now you're gone. Mama, it's so hard to carry on. Steve Sanderson said, Mother's Day weekend here. Coincidence? Keep on rocking. Actually, that was totally coincidence. I didn't even notice that until Steve mentioned it. We record these shows like four weeks in advance, and I just load them up, put the post on date, and then I go on with my life completely forgetting. So that mama came out on Mother's Day weekend, just total random chance. So I thought that was kind of funny that that happened. Yeah, I didn't even know it was Mother's Day weekend. I typically listen to a new episode while I'm driving home at night in a car, and it's basically just to uh, see how it went, and because uh, Eric Paul always does a great job on editing things together and making the show sound good, and I usually mm-hmm. do a great job of distortion. <laughs> so, and well, hums, and everything else as I try to figure out how to get a computer I'm still learning after I had a computer for about 10-15 years that I loved and learning how to uh, deal with Windows 10. I've heard bad things about it, but I have a Mac. Although I can't say those are great because Macs... Yeah, those aren't that great anymore either. No, since Steve Jobs died, they've become more frustrating and just die holler. I think it's it's the vengeful ghost uh, that haunts them all. Could be. It wants you to eat more fruit. (laughs) MJ Folds said... Good episode. I always forget. Oh no, I read. Didn't I read you? I read yours. Oops. That was mine. Okay, well, now we're going to be going. <laughs> you go ahead and read it. Good episode. <laughs> I always forget how good and solid this song is. I first heard it when at college after buying Electric Light Orchestra, the gold collection. That sounds like something I should get a hold of. It, it's not re recordings, is it? It's actual, the original recordings. Yeah, I think it's another compilation of the bajillions of compilations that were made. Okay. 
because, yeah, I need to load some Electric Light Orchestra stuff up onto the radio station that I do some programming on, and I typically do vinyl rips, but for the radio station, I prefer not to have vinyl rips on there, so... What radio station is that? Go ahead and plug it. That would be maxradio.ca. Everybody should and go I do listen. a show live every Sunday at 12 p.m. Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time. And he plays a wide array of music. It's entertaining and musically educational. Yes, it is. Emphasis on the entertaining. Yes. Maxine Williams wrote, Gorgeous Song. No disagreement there. I, nope. Pauletta Zach says, I've enjoyed these podcasts, Eric. I never knew Jeff edited this song and lopped off three minutes. I am definitely a fan of the long version. Yep. I like it much better, yeah. too. Yeah, there's not really any reason to chop that that particular one up. I mean, there's other songs he could he could definitely chop up, but that one, no, Mama's fine as it is. It's just leave it alone. It's good. Did a good job. Now walk away and work on some other stuff. That was good. Yeah, you're not Spielberg. You're not Lucas. Leave it alone. Yeah. Roll over Beethoven, Pam Van Allen, who likes to stare at strangers' butts at concerts. This is an in-joke, because me and her and a bunch of other people are having a debate on the Jeff Lynn Facebook page, where she doesn't mind standing up and dancing around during a concert, whereas me, I want people to sit the fuck down. I did not pay money so I could stare at other people's asses for two hours. Sit down. That says why I don't go to concerts very much anymore, is because, uh, yeah, I'm with you. I'm sit down, shut up, listen to the music, which I think what the band would usually consider everybody sitting down staring at him to be a bad crowd, but... I mean, you could cheer, you can hoot, you can holler, but sit down. Not everybody is the same height. I'm like 5'7", and there was a concert tour last year. Cheap Trick, Joan Jett, and Heart. And uh, I'd been looking forward for 30, 40 years to seeing Cheap Trick do I Want You to Want Me Live and, and Joan Jett doing her stuff and, and heart. But instead, all I saw were the asses of people in their late 40s and 50s. And most people in their late 40s and 50s, their good ass years have long since gone. And uh, I'd get frustrated. I would stand up, but these people are taller than me. I could see a little chunk of the jumbotron between some heads, and then that's when some nitwit would put up their phone so they could record the show. That's why you have to like indie bands that nobody's ever heard of. There you go. Yes. So then all you do is sit around and mumble about how good they used to be before they got <laughs> too popular. That's right. <laughs> ELO used to be so much better those first concerts when only seven people showed up and, according to Bev Bevan, did nothing but make noise. So much better then. Before selling out. Yeah. Um, anyway, <laughs> Pam said, love your snarky Face the Music podcast. I hope you like the later stuff better than No Answer. Otherwise, why would you be fans? Yeah, once we hit El Dorado, I'm going to be jizzing love all over ELO. Just another example of knowing what to say and when to say it. Uh... Okay, I, I sense that the, the lawyers of Yellow would have a lot to say about you doing that. Another reason why you don't let Eric Paul go to concerts. That's Yeah, that'd be another reason, too. Yeah. That might fly at a Guar concert, but keep in mind, they use fake stuff. <laughs> yeah, and I don't like Guar, so I guess it's, not, it's just not going to 
not gonna work out for me. I was gonna make a joke about Van Allen belts, but uh, I don't think we got too many astronomy buffs listening, except for maybe Jeff. Andy Essex says, Hi guys. Hi. Hello. Really enjoying the shows. Short, sweet, funny, and informative. Love the comment about how expensive messing around in the studio is, unless you own a studio. This explains the presence of Who's That on Flashback. Now he owns a studio. Jeff can afford to put fart noises on his records. Keep up the good work and remember to stay under 15 minutes long. Cheers. He and did that it again. One, somebody actually wrote to our... That one was sent to our Gmail address. And, okay. uh... And I agree with him. Fart noises on Who's That, that was fine. It's a funny song, and it works there. I can say a little bit about it, because we're not going to get to it until February 27th, 2021, if I did my figuring right. On Who's That, yeah, fart noises work on that song. It's kind of a funny Monty Python-esque song. And uh, fart noises, sure, that's good on that. Over Beethoven's Fifth, not really. That would only work if you had the visual and saw people doing it by making fart noises with their armpits with it. But uh, otherwise, no, no farting over the fifth of Beethoven. Yeah, getting on stage and entertaining people with farts went out in the early 20th century. <laughs> yeah. There was a French guy who made his entire living doing it, so. I know, I, I found that out, that it, there was a, a fartiste. That, uh, yes. Yeah. And I always claimed to be one, but the teacher just said, nope, and put a couple more checks on the board. I had more checks on the board than Czechoslovakia. That joke was old when radio was just a funny noise from Schenectady. We're going into Sun to the World. Hello, that's down from Sun to the World. No Pam Van Allen, again, and you said not too many astronomy buffs listening. She points out something I didn't know about, and I actually looked it up, and it's true. Eric. You didn't mention one of the coolest things about this song. Its length on vinyl is 8 minutes 20 seconds. Look how long it takes light to travel from the sun to the world. That's right, our Jeff was an astronomy buff way back then. And it does take 8 minutes 20 seconds from the light from the sun to get to the earth. I don't know if Jeff did that on purpose or if it was just a, a funny accident of recording time. Well, it's possible. I've seen artists do a lot stranger things, like Tool and the whole Fibonacci sequence on uh, the album Lateralis. So, entire songs based on Fibonacci sequences. So, <laughs> 8 minutes and 20 seconds, I think that's an easy one to accomplish. Even though I'm surprised there hasn't been a Cypress Hill album where every song is 4 minutes 20 seconds. The silence that you're hearing is me nodding, staring blankly, pretending to understand everything Eric just said. <laughs> you're up next. Okay. Oh, one thing I did want to say from the sun to the world, when I listened to the podcast, uh, the piano part that was played, I figured out the part that I was singing that sounded like a Scottish soldier was actually the synthesizer part at the beginning. Oh, oops. Yeah, I was thinking it was a piano part, not the piano instrumental part, but I was thinking piano, but it was the synthesizer part at the beginning. So if anybody was confused by that, listen to the beginning of it at the beginning of the podcast, and yeah, you'll see more of the connection there. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I also did hear it with the piano thing when I edited everything together. Okay. Aaron Jansen, or Jansen, says, can't wait until next week's podcast. Well, here you go. And next week's podcast was Kuyama.
which got more replies than I thought. I didn't, I didn't expect Kuyama to get this kind of reception. Aaron Jansen said, I first heard this album on my father's cassette copy. What I liked about it is they had Kuyama split between the A and B sides. If my memory serves me correctly, it ended on the A side at about the 8 minute mark. I'm not sure if that track listing was only for the American copy, or if they just changed the track listing for the reissue. Anyhow, splitting the song into two gave it kind of a reprise effect, and made it a little less drawn out. I could see Kuyama working better like that than 12 minutes in a row. Um, well, I'm checking to see something real quick here. Notorious thing called an A-track. <laughs> yes. See how they had it on here. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, they did split Kiyama. Actually, on the A-track, they have the boogies retitled Just Boogie Number One and Just Boogie Number Two. Yeah. And they have the little clunk in the middle of both of those, and the clunk in the middle of Kiyama. Kiyama being the third song in the sequence and Mama being the last song on the uh, 8-track. Roll Over Beethoven starts the whole thing off. Mm -hmm. So it's completely different sequencing, and the longer songs all have that nice little 8-track clunk in them. I've known people who love 8-tracks, and I just don't understand why. I've always hated them. The sequence is all out of order, because I think they got to try and make songs fit before things chunk into the next track. And when they don't, you're listening to the song, you're into it, oh, I like this, and then all of a sudden, ka-chunk! Right in the middle of the song, into where it left off, and I just never saw the appeal of the 8-track. I mean, I understand before cassettes, this was the only way you could take your music around with you, but after that, why? Yeah, that's what the entire listening public thought at the time, too, was, oh, okay, don't need these anymore. Yeah, yeah. I think I I've heard... this. I can use this to briefly hold up the wall until I get enough VHS tapes to stack up. Yeah. So. I had a friend who had Xanadu on 8-track, and I heard it quite often, and the ka-chunk would come right in the middle of Don't Walk Away, which is a terrible place to have a ka-chunk. Fortunately, most of it I've blocked it out until I remember just now, but I will be expecting the ka-chunk right in the middle of that beautiful song. I hate right. tracks. Yeah, I'm, I was trying to see if I could find the cassette version on here. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised at the early cassettes if they resequenced it as well. The early because, cassettes, yeah. Yeah, record companies had a bad habit of doing stuff like that. Yeah, they did. Doug Payton says, The best group that so many people have never heard of. I would agree. There have been so many times when I've said Electric Light Orchestra and gotten a blank look from people. And then I play Don't Bring Me Down or some big hit. Usually it's Don't Bring Me Down because that's the one most people have heard. And they're like, oh, oh I know them. So, yeah, it's, it's a curse of ELO. Everybody knows their songs, but nobody knows who does them. And those who do know who ELO are, for the longest time, it was kind of like a guilty pleasure. There's an entire Henry Rollins spoken word routine talking about getting caught by punk fans uh, walking out of a store with an ELO album. <laughs> See, if you're into the punk and the harder stuff, yeah, I could see how ELO would be a guilty pleasure, but since I never really got too into that stuff, I, it never bothered me. What always bothered me was in high school, and these are people my age, so, you know, all their life they heard ELO on the radio too, and they would ask me, 
16, 17-year-olds, what's your favorite band? And I would say Electric Light Orchestra. And 99% of the time, I would get back, you like classical music? And <laughs> I would just shake my head and just stop talking. <laughs> and I, a very shy and skittish person back in high school. And hasn't changed all that too much, sort of. But there was a girl, and she was very cute, at a newspaper, high school newspaper convention. We were at the dance, and she asked me to dance. And I said, no, no, I, I, I don't know how to dance. But she was persistent, and she kept saying, okay, what if the DJ plays a song that you like? And I thought, this is it. This is my out. I'm going to get that blank look in the classical music thing. And I said, electric light orchestra. And she said, okay, I'll go ask him to play it. I was like, what? wait, what? She knows who ELO is? And we became friends, and yes, she did. She told me that Telephone Line has always made her cry. Is that the one she got him to play, or was it Rock and Roll as King? Uh, it was April 4th, 1986, so it would have been Calling America, uh, and he didn't Calling play... Calling America, okay. Yeah, and he didn't play any ELO. And I didn't get to dance with the girl. Yeah, but my I friend... Got, I got him to play Rock and Roll as King one time when I asked if I hadn't... If I asked the DJ if they had any progressive music. Mm-hmm. That was about the closest he had. Yeah, but my friend who went with me and who's a big-time newspaper journalist, he danced with her and they hooked up and they became boyfriend-girlfriend. And for a few years, I was like, you idiot, you should have danced with her. Stupid! You're so stupid! Oh, well, what can you do? Yeah. Hey, you got better now. I sure did. Yes. In case Melissa hears this, I'm not knocking you. I'm just saying. Tull is a much better match for me. That's romantic. Pam Van Allen again. Please listen to the instrumental bridge in Kuyama again. The guitar and violin solos are in counterpoint to each other. Jeff is using a technique with his guitar that he developed during Idol Race days so that it sounds like a violin. There is one point where the violin takes over for the guitar in mid-riff and you can just tell the difference between the two. I will have to listen to that. I meant to check it out before we got to this, but I didn't get a chance to. Yeah, that's, in, that's interesting, because I didn't notice that either. Yeah. And Ken Lambert says, I was two when this came out. Love it. You are killing me. Time on the third day and no answer in my top three. Love this song. I will agree with you with time. I do love time. On the third day, we're about to start it, so I'll save that review after we finish that album. And I've already said how I feel about no answer. <laughs> Time's an okay album. See, I love it. I like quite a bit off of it. Probably have to listen to it again. But yeah, I would for a late album, as uh, their time period was starting to change, it was pretty impressive that they were actually still able to pull off something like that. Because, yeah, disco was kind of going out, and they were smart enough to run from it and actually yes. try and do a prog album again. Yeah, well, we won't be getting to time until around February 2020. So I can say that I loved time from the first time I heard it. It's a great science fiction album. It does an excellent job of creating a sonic future world that I can see so clearly in my head when I listen to it. And the songs are catchy on top of all that, too. So They have a good beat, and we can dance to them. It, it's got a good beat, and I can really bug out to it. Maxine Williams said of Kuyama, Fabulous song, one of my favorites. We interrupt this program to bring you a special bulletin. Bulletin, bulletin. This is a bulletin. <laughs> Time now for us to take a leak at the news. This Justin ELO's 
Secret Mrs. will be released as a double album the way Jeff Wynn mostly intended. The 150-gram set will come out on August 3rd. However, it doesn't include Beatles Forever. So even though the podcast is 10 to 15 minutes at the most, our commentaries will go longer than that and things will have to be chopped up. So here are some of the more attempted, entertaining parts of each episode that was cut out. These first outtakes are from in Old England Town. Also, they, um, it was a, a gatefold. I don't know if it was a gatefold or when you opened, it was a gatefold. It was and a gatefold. The U- UK version's a gatefold. Yeah, and I think the American version was too. I, I'd have to pull it out to see. Speaking of pulling out, you'll see where this is going. But when you opened it up, the back of it, the way they had the star patterns, it was intended to look like the open legs of a lady. And Ah, uh, oh, for... Much better song coming up next. Oh, God, yes. I love Mama. It's... It- yeah, no, that's that's gonna be a much better song. We're gonna have a well, I'm gonna have a lot to say about that one because it's probably one of my favorite ELO songs. Period. Not even just early, just period. Yeah, yeah. Um, and when my fiance heard in Old England Town when I played it for Madeline, uh, she said that sounded better than anything she had heard off the first album. And it's like I told her, yeah, they got better once they got out of that first album. Roll over Beethoven was tough to get started because Madeline kept wanting to play when it was time for recording time. Is it working now? Okay. I'm I'm good here. I'm good here. Okay. Let's get this over with. <laughs> um, I'm Eric Paul Johnson. And I'm Eric Winsensen. Go downstairs! <laughs> And I like this song. It, it would have been real shame if this would have been all they were ever remembered for. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a great version, but do you want to go through your career being known as the guys who remade that Chuck Berry song? Instead exactly. of known as for Telephone Line or Hold On Tight or right. Don't Bring Which Me Which that curse happened to the Beatles, you know. That's all everybody thinks of the Beatles, is those people who did the Chuck Berry song. Well, I, it's, I, I know. It's all Chuck Berry and Buddy Holly from those Beatle guys. Yeah. If only they had, you know, I don't know, maybe dropped some acid. Maybe they would have done some original stuff or something. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be ni- nice if there were ever any original compositions from them, yeah. But we just have to deal with the Beatle remakes instead. True. Yeah. And now we're going to do From the Sun to the World, Boogie Number 1. Sounds very much like... A song by Andy Stewart. Andy Stewart was a Scottish singer who was popular in the 50s for a novelty version of Donald Wears Your Trousers. <laughs> but he was also very popular for him doing a more traditional song called A Scottish Soldier. I'm going to send you a copy of that so that you can hear it. I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> yeah, see, I knew I'm not going to torture our audience with singing that song. Yeah. Even though I love yeah, the see, song, I, I, know, I, I have some reverence know, for it. <laughs> when you said the name, when we were working on the uh, No Answer Bonus Tracks episode, in my head I was thinking, oh, the, the guy from The Police. So I was like sort of half with it then. 
But when you said Scotty were your truesers, I was like, oh, I know that guy. Thanks to Dr. Demento. I know who you're talking about. From my dim-witted view, that could be about all the pollution we were pumping into the air and the smog and everything. And the sun can't get through, so you can't support the life. So the the moving across the ocean black flag of death is coming for us all. Hmm. Yeah, it's possible because that was the beginning of the environmental movement. Yeah, I was, I was alive back then. What was I? About three? I kind of remember. So yeah, the, the environmental thing was a big deal at the time. I think that. Of course, they thought we were all going to freeze to death, but some thought that. Yeah, <laughs> I, as myself, I, I bring that on. I love the cold. <laughs> I know I could use an ice age about now, especially since I live in Phoenix and it's May. It's getting to be it's... May almost. Well, it's April, but it's going to be May here coming up. Well, when this airs, it will be May. It will be May. Yeah, when this posts. Yeah, I saw on Facebook that somebody posted that it was 100 degrees yesterday, and it's like, I never, ever miss it. Although it's supposed to get hot. Yeah. Although it's going to get hot here. It's supposed to get 85 next week. Yeah, you get humidity. <laughs> humidity. <laughs> this is not going on the recording, I think. No, I think we finished, I think we finished a little bit ago, but yeah, I think... They certainly got plenty to work with anyway. And these are the parts from the commentary on Kuyama that didn't make it into the episode. When I first heard the song, I was like, what's Kuyama? What's a Kuyama? And for years, for the last 34-ish, 35 and a half years or so, whatever, however long December 31st, 1983 was ago. Too long. I, yes. <laughs> My math is probably wrong. It can't possibly be more than 35 years ago. Um, I've wondered, what is Kuyama? What? I don't understand. Otherworldly or supernaturally about Kuyama, it's just the girl whose parents that soldier Jeff killed. Right. And I think, yeah, it's slightly Asian-sounding name, and I think that's kind of what he was going for because Vietnam was winding down at the time. I don't think he wanted to do anything specifically... Vietnam War oriented, but he wanted something more just in general. But mm -hmm. uh, at that time, yeah, at that time, a lot of the wars that we and the UK had fought had been in Asia. So Kiyama's just a slightly Asian sounding name, but I don't think it's actually a real name. I think he just kind of made it up because it sounds good when you sing it. It, it does. And it's also kind of fun to say Kuyama. So, yeah. Or Kiyama, however you're supposed to say it. Yeah, this is a rare anti-war song from ELO. I don't really know if there are any others um, that are so bald-faced anti-war. I know he said that One Summer Dream was a protest song, and I'm just... Maybe when we get to it and I read the lyrics, I'll see the protest, but to me, One Summer Dream just is such a dreamy song that I don't hear the F you, whatever Jeff is trying to F you, about in one summer dream well that one i'll have to pass on because i cannot remember for the life of me what <laughs> what song that one is that's the last one on face the music okay so yeah face the music is one of my is one of my one of their better albums so yeah that's, oh yes yeah. yeah that'll be definitely worth checking out again like it hate it what does madeline think for elo to continue it must hook a generation of younger listeners. 
and they will continue to listen to and spread the word of ELO for at least another 80 to 100 years. And there's no better representative for the future of humanity than my six and a half year old stepdaughter, Madeline. I loved it! Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Ooh, I love it, love it, love it, love it, love it! I am just so good. Even when I'm spelling, I know what to do. Yeah, 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 yeah. The end. Peace out. All right, now what did you think of it? I loved it. Yeah, yeah. The end. Ooh, 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 Say peace out. She did. Peace out, booba, booba. Face the Music, an Electric Light Orchestra song by song podcast, is a production of Radio Trolla Entertainment, Assorted Deli Meets Amalgamated. Contact us by voicemail at 623 850 3375 or email us at podcast at gmail.com. Keep up to date on the show by joining our Facebook group. You can financially support the podcast by going to podomatic.com slash podcasts slash LNTCS and click on the PayPal button. Next week, episode 015, Showdown.